Well, let's bow in a word of prayer as we begin our time tonight. Father, we thank You for uh, this time in the Word of God. We thank You that we can be together, that we can open the Word together, and that You have communicated to us that we might understand You, know You, and be able to live as we ought because of what You have accomplished for us. Lord, we pray that what we hear tonight would would help us with that, would encourage us and shape us and exhort us in all that we are to be so that Christ is exemplified, glorified, and honored uh, in our life and that others might know Him as their Savior. So bless our time. All to Your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's take our Bibles then tonight and open them together to our study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, we have really just begun. It's been quite some time since we've been here. I think it's been several weeks um, because that's how our evening services sometimes go. But we've just begun to really analyze the grand truths that are given to us by God's grace here in Ephesians chapter 1. We have really been focusing our attention on the larger section beginning in verse 3 and continuing down through verse 14. But specifically, honing in at least uh, last time together, and we will tonight, in verses 3 through 6. You remember uh, from our time previously that if if you were to look at these verses, particularly verses 3 through 14 in the original language, uh, you would find that it's just one long sentence. It's, it's one carry-on thought after thought from the Apostle Paul because of all the truth that he wants to convey and what it is saying to us. And when we think about it, we understand, particularly in any language, but even in our own for sure, that every sentence in any kind of communication has a point to it. It has a point that it is driving to, no matter what that sentence is. And oftentimes, within the sentence, the point that it is driving at is surrounded by other words and other phrases that lend to it a nuance or a a flavor, if you will, to the overall point that it's trying to make. And certainly that is true in this sentence that the Apostle Paul gives us here in his letter to the Ephesians. Right? There is a point. It has one point. It has a driving point. And then everything else is lending flavor to that. Everything else is lending color to it. It is helping to to fill out, if you will, what Paul is driving at as his point. Everything else around the main point is fleshing out the details, if you will, of the point that he's making to us. And as I have stated to us, the point of all of what is said here is that God would be praised. That God would be praised. In other words, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is to be blessed. You and I, as His people, are to be blessing or praising God. He is to be praised. That's the point. That is the emphasis that Paul is making. We are to speak well of God, and we are to live well for God. We are to speak about God and all that He has accomplished, and we are to thereby live out what God has accomplished for us. Because of all that He has done for us, and what He has done for us is delineated for us throughout this one sentence and in the rest of this letter throughout all five chapters that we have by way of our own numbering system. 
So that is simply to say that what we have by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul here in these verses ought to bring us to the place in our own lives and in our own minds where we praise God. That is God's ultimate purpose in what he is saying. This is why I've entitled this series of messages, God's Ultimate Purpose. This is his purpose in telling us these things. We are to praise him, not just in words, we are to praise him more so in how we live, which is what this entire letter helps us to understand. So why is Paul telling the Ephesian believers these deep and profound truths so that they would speak and so that they would live to the glory, to the praise of the glory of God? Why are we as Christians today to hear and to know of these magnificent and grand truths that Paul lays out for us here so that we would speak and live all to the praise of the glory of God. And this is the phrase that we see over and over again in these verses. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Verse 11, we, uh, or I'm sorry, verse 12, to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. This is the point that Paul gives. Verse 14, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. So this is the drive that the Apostle Paul is getting at for us to understand right out of the gate. We are to speak about God and we are to live for God so that God would be praised. And when we do that, He is being praised by us and others are seeing the praise of the glory of God. So with that in mind, I want us to return then to verses 3 through 6 as we begin to understand how we got into this profound reality that we know of as the family of God. How we got into it. Let me read for us these verses. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. So Paul has declared that we have been blessed by God. Paul is declaring that reality concerning us who know Jesus Christ. We have been blessed by God. I don't think there could be any more precious words or precious understanding in all of Scripture than to hear and to know that God has blessed us. As an individual, there's no greater truth to have in our heart than to know that God, the Creator of me, the Creator of us, has blessed us. That we are to shower God with praise because God has praised us with gifts of His grace. That's what the word means. The word blessing is just that word, praise God. God has praised us 
with His gifts of grace. And therefore, because of that, we are to praise God. And so Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 through 14, lists these blessings that God has blessed us with. And I, I want us to notice that in verse 3, he tells us that these blessings are spiritual blessings. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, notice, in the heavenlies or in the heavenly places. In the heavenlies. We cannot just, just quickly run over that because that speaks more of the security of the blessings that we have been given than it does with us having them. The emphasis is placed more there on the reality that all of these blessings that we have been given by God are absolutely secure blessings. We have them for sure, and we have them because they're secure with God. In other words, that tells us that they are not of this world. These are not blessings that come from the earthly realm. They're not worldly blessings. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, I mean that while they are actually ours, even while we live in this earthly place, right here, right now, we have these blessings. They're ours even though we are here. These are blessings that have to do with another realm. They are blessings that have to do with not the temporal realm of this earth. They have to do with our eternal future. These are spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. Our future as spiritual beings. These have to do with, with that reality, not our physical being, not our earthly reality. These are spiritual blessings that are held protected for us with God. They are in the heavenlies. This is the depository of God on our behalf where moth and rust cannot destroy. Therefore, as we have it for us here in our Bibles, verses 4 through 14 lays out for us all that has been given to us and how it came to be. How it is, in fact, that we even got to be part of such a great depository of spiritual truth, of spiritual blessings. Remember in verse 4 that Paul begins by saying, just as, just as. In the original language, that is actually a compound word, kathos. It is kata in the original language. Kata means according to or according. And hos is the other little word that is just the word as. As. And this begins an entire series. This just one word begins an entire series of statements that are to be taken in a comparative way. In other words, they're to be taken by way of comparison. Verse 3 informs us that we are to be praising God. We are to be showering God with blessing according as He has praised us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, comparatively. In other words, in comparison to how God has given us all of this and here all of these things are, comparatively, here's what they are. Here's all of those things. And so to the extent of our praising God is to be comparative to what He has given us. 
That's very important for us to understand by way of implication when we think about it. <clears throat> because that is telling us implicationally that unless we understand what we have been blessed with, unless we understand what God has actually done for us, we will come up short on the proper praise that is due God because of that blessing. Unless we understand what God has given to us, what God has given us by way of these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, then the reality of to the praise of the glory of His grace will fall short in our exercise of it. In other words, God will not be praised as God is due the praise that He deserves if we do not understand these truths. Our praise of God will be a corresponding praise when we understand what God has given us. And therefore, there is a sense that we will not live as we ought to live unless we understand these truths. So Paul is, Paul is starting out with these Ephesian believers at the very ground root. And he is saying, listen, you need to understand something about what God has done for you. You have, to, you have to have this picture in your mind. You need to see all that God has done so that when you live out your life, it will be lived out in praise to the glory of His grace. When you talk about God, it will be talking about God to the praise of the glory of His grace. Why? Because you understand all the spiritual blessings that He's given you. And so Paul says, just as... Just as, what? First, He chose us in Him. In who? That is Jesus Christ, right? He says that in the beginning verses, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then He goes into all of the realities of that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So He chose us where? In Christ. In Jesus Christ. And we know that because verse 3 tells us that. Verse 3 clearly tells us that. We have the blessings that are in Christ. So the choosing was in Christ. And all of these spiritual blessings are attached to Jesus Christ. And therefore, there can only be possessions of ours. These spiritual blessings are ours. They're only ours through Jesus Christ. You cannot get them any other way. That's a very important differentiating point. Because in saying that, Paul means that there are no spiritual blessings from God in our life unless we are attached to Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how your life may seem to be going. It doesn't matter what you think about your life or what others think about your life, if you're not attached to Jesus Christ by faith in Jesus Christ, then you have no spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. You cannot be someone who will be with God in His abode and receive the inheritance from God of eternal life unless you are attached to Jesus Christ and all the spiritual blessings that come with that are only through Jesus Christ. They are in and through Him. And the first attachment to Jesus Christ was accomplished by God for us. It was accomplished for us. And what was that? He chose us in Him. He chose us in Him. I love it how 
this doctrine can be so difficult for some to allow into their minds, and yet God starts off right there. So many believe that God does the choosing of man, or at least to believe that God does the choosing of man and that man does not choose. That is a struggle for the fallen human heart to receive, to accept, to believe. Why? Because that is to say that unless God chooses, no one else is chosen. See, to say that God does the choosing is to say that unless God is the one who chooses, then no one gets chosen, no one gets saved. And for some, that is either a contradictory thought to what they believe about man and his ability to choose, or it is contrary to the idea of what they say God's love is. For it wouldn't be love, they say, if God just chooses some and not all. And it is contrary to man's ability to choose if it's God choosing and not man choosing. Doesn't that just make men robots? But the reality is that the doctrine of God's choosing is actually contrary to the idea of man having some kind of ability to autonomously choose him. And it's actually contrary to the man-made doctrine of the love of God and how man defines love. Why? Because first of all, God's choosing was accomplished both in his own mind and by way of action. You notice in verse 4, it was done and accomplished both in his mind and in the outworking of it before the foundation of the world. It says, just as he chose us in him, before that simple little preposition gets in the way every time before the foundation of the world so what we are getting a look at here is a view into the mind of god into the heart of god before we read the words of genesis 1 where god created This is the mind of God before God created anything, before God did one thing out of His heart to create, before God said anything about let it be and it was. Before there was any one thing to choose from, this was God choosing before there was any kind of physical choice. It was before creation. And therefore, it was before the fall of mankind into sin. And therefore, the choosing of God had nothing to do with the fall at all. God choosing was simply out of the heart and mind of God. That is simply to say that God's choosing was not based upon man's ability to choose Him at all. But rather, it was a sovereign an autonomously free choice of God to elect whom He will elect. Therefore, it is not an arbitrary decision. It was not based upon anything in the object being chosen. We know that, for there was no object to choose. It was before the foundation of the world. All of this was before creation. And therefore, it was simply according to the kind intention of His will, as verse 5 clearly tells us. Secondly, it was, notice, notice, 
beginning at the end of verse 4, in love He predestined us to adoption as sons. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons. So first He chose us, at least by way of how Paul is listing them here. And then secondly, He predestined us in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons. Again, through Jesus Christ to Himself. He chose us in Jesus Christ. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. That's what verse 5 tells us. God chose as a result of God's predestination because of God's love. And so you notice that Paul introduces this new term for us here, pre destined predestined another word that people struggle with he has chosen us he says in verse 4 he has chosen us and he has chosen us by means of or because of his predestinating of us now we got to just stop for a moment because we don't want to make a mistake here and think that this is just another repeating of the same idea. That, that Paul is just saying it a different way. It is not. This is not just another facet of the, uh, or another way to say the same thing. This actually is a, a turning, if you will, of, of the glorious diamond that we're looking at. And we're looking at all the sides and, and, and Paul has simply turned it one little notch this way so that now we have a whole new facet that we're looking at it. The spiritual blessings that have been given to us, we're, we're peering into it from another blessing. That is to say, there is a difference between choosing and predestinating. Predestinating means to determine beforehand. Think about that. It doesn't just mean to say, I think I'll do this. It, 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 it's a determined beforehand. In other words, to declare it before it ever is. To declare it as such before it ever is. In other words, something happens because it is declared that it will happen, and then the one who declared it to happen ensures that it does happen. This is what we're talking about. When we say predestinating, that's what we mean. So what the Apostle Paul is telling us by using this word is that this was God's ultimate plan. This was God's ultimate plan. In other words, what Paul is saying is that this was God's plan and the word chosen is part of the execution of that plan. So Paul begins to tell us that God executed this plan by choosing us in Christ and He chose us in Christ because God predetermined to choose us as adoption, to, to choose us in Him to be adopted as his own children. So think about it. Before time ever was created by God, out of love, out of a heart of love, God predetermined that blessings in Christ, these blessings that we see throughout this entire text are, that are all in Christ, God predetermined them and then God executed them in and through Christ. So God made the plan, He determined the plan, and then He 
saw fit to carry out that plan exactly as God had predetermined the plan. And so all of these spiritual blessings were predetermined by God before He ever carried out any plan to do it in Jesus Christ. So He made the plan, and then He carried out the plan. He predetermined it, and in the execution of that predetermination, He chose us in Jesus Christ. Now notice, notice, stick with me here, because this is... The Apostle Paul, this is how he writes, and it's, it's just causing our brains to just twist into this mesh of theological truths that are taking us down avenues that are just exploding our mind if we're sticking with it. Notice, we saw this last time, but I want to emphasize it again tonight, and then I want to add something else to it. You notice that it says in verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. So the predetermined plan is being executed by God in Jesus Christ. God chooses us in Jesus Christ, and He chooses us with a purpose. And that purpose, it it, it has a goal. There's a goal in God's choosing us in Jesus Christ. And that goal is for those whom He chooses, those whom He has chosen in Christ, that they would be able to be with Him in His heavenly place. Paul says He chose us so that we who are chosen would be holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. In a sense, Paul is describing two things, but just from a different angle. Holy means to be separate. That's one angle. We are to be holy. God has predetermined and planned out our holiness. That's that's a a positional angle in the sense that in the mind and heart of God, we are positionally in this place of holiness because we are in Christ, and yet it is a practical reality as well in how we live internally. So from one angle, it is an internal angle. We are separated unto holiness and blameless or blemish-free. That's the external angle. In other words, God chose us so that we would be clean, so that we would be undefiled inwardly, and that it would show outwardly. So that our position in Christ would be reflected in how we live here and now, because being in Christ is to be clean inwardly, and that inward reality shows itself outwardly. We are chosen to be holy and blameless. That's why it's oxymoronic. For anyone to say, I believe in Jesus, and yet go on living like they lived in the world. Certainly true as Christians, we sin. Certainly true that we act foolishly, and we disregard the things of the truth of the Word of God, and we do things we ought not do. And yet the reality is, we are holy before God, and therefore we are to live that way in practical living here and now. So because we are holy, we are to live holy. Because we are blameless before God in Christ, we should be living in such a way that shows us to be that. Where? Where is that? The text says before Him. We are holy and blameless before Him. No more important place to be found holy and blameless than before God. I don't want to stand before God and not be holy and blameless. 
God finds any blemish in us, we have no hope. Right? There's the only thing that God accepts is perfect holiness, and therefore we need that perfect holiness, and the only place we get that perfect holiness is Jesus Christ. And so if we're not enveloped in Jesus Christ, if we're not in Jesus Christ, there is no holiness, there is no blamelessness, and so to stand before God without holiness and blamelessness is to stand before God and be condemned by His judgment. But in Jesus Christ having been chosen in Christ by God, we are right now in the heart and mind of God, we are before God and we are in His presence and we are holy and blameless. We need to understand that. We need to know that because when we understand that and know that in the positional sense, we ought to then therefore be motivated to live that out in a practical sense. In fact, chapter 2 in verse 6, notice what it says. When I say we are, we, are, we are there right now in the mind and heart of God, notice what chapter 2, verse 6 says. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross, as it says, God rich in mercy, verse 4, because of what? His great love with which He loved us, Right? Even when we were dead, He made us alive with Christ and raised us with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places because we're in Christ. Well, this is a reality that is true of us right now. It's just another way of saying that we are in fellowship with God right now. We are in Christ by faith in Jesus Christ. If it is true of us, as Paul is writing to these believers, to the saints who are at Ephesus, the faithful in Jesus Christ, those who believe in Jesus Christ, if that is true of us, then we are right now in fellowship with God. In fact, this is how the Apostle John even said it in 1 John chapter 1. Here's what he said. Beginning in 1 John 1, beginning in... Verse 1 says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and are and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. You say, okay, that's great, Pastor. You're up to the earthly part. Okay, we have fellowship with those who knew Jesus Christ before. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We have right now fellowship with God. We are in koinonia with God. We are in this unified fellowship with God through the Son, Jesus Christ. John says, I write this to you. I want you to understand this so that our joy may be complete. And then he says, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. What is that? That God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. John says, I want you to understand something about your relationship with God. Your relationship with God is such that you have a fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. And you must remember this. This is what 
you need to understand about God. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. You say, why would John be telling Christians that? Because it's so important that we live who we are. It's so important that we live who we are. Since there is no darkness with God at all, then those who are in His presence, those who are in fellowship with Him, cannot be of darkness. He is undefiled purity. And so all of those who are before Him, all of those who are in His presence, all of those who are holy and blameless before Him in Christ, must be themselves and practice holy and blameless. What is Paul saying by telling us that God chose us to be holy and blameless before Him? Well, he's simply saying that the object and purpose of our election, the object and purpose of us being brought before God in Christ is so that we might be brought to the condition of being able to be in His presence practically. We are being conformed to the image of His Son. And one day we will be fully conformed to the image of Christ. There will be no sin. All of it will be gone. And so we must be holy and blameless before God And none of us would be holy and blameless were it not for being in Him, in Christ. In other words, it's only because we are attached to Christ. Jesus Christ gave Himself as the holy and blameless One, and in Him we have been given His holiness and His blamelessness. And so we can be in the presence of God. So right here, right now, Paul is talking about our position in Christ before God. And yet, further on in our study, as we will see, as you go further on, we're going to see that our practice is to reflect that same holiness and blamelessness. In fact, just to quickly show you this, just in word, go over to Ephesians chapter 5. You probably know it well. Right? Ephesians chapter 5, coming off all that he says in Ephesians chapter 4 about walking as a Christian, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 4, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Right? Paul says in verse 1 of that same chapter, chapter 4, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. This is how you're to walk, right? And then he lists all of these kind of things. He lists character qualities and things about how you are to walk and how you are to live. Don't walk as the Gentiles walk in verse 17 in the futility of their mind. They're darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart. He says, don't do all of that. Be renewed in your mind, verse 23. Put on the new self. Lay aside falsehood. And he gives all these characteristics. And then he comes to chapter 5 and he says these important words that seem astronomically impossible unless we are in Christ. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children. 
You see, the imitation of God is based upon the reality of a relationship with God. That's why he says that. Therefore, be imitators of God. Mimic God. That's the word there. Be a mimic of God as a beloved child of God and walk in what? Love. What kind of love? The kind of love that Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you as an offering and a sacrifice to God. In other words, die to self. Die to self. Why? Because it reflects the character of being in Christ. So all of this wasn't an act of non-love by God. As some will say, that, oh, that's not loving if God does this. If God chooses before the foundation of the world, if it has nothing to do with us, then that's not the love of God. No, none of this had anything to do with a non-love by God, a, a love that's defined by us, as some try to say. No, this was fully a reflection of love. It was fully out of His love that God chose you say, how do you know that? Because it was out of his love that he predetermined to do so. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons. And so Paul begins with these grand truths. He chose us in him. He predestined us in him. And notice what he attaches to this. Notice he says he predestined us to adoption as sons. So now we are face to face with these two monumental statements that Paul makes. He chose us before the foundation of the world and he predetermined that we would be his sons. In other words, it was God's plan. It was God's purpose that certain ones of his sovereign creation before the fall or anything ever happened because nothing had been created, he chose some to be his children. That was God's original plan. That was his purpose in redemption. To have children who would be to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. And in order to carry out that determined plan, it was essential that God choose. That He would sovereignly select those whom He would bring to that conclusion. To that place where they would be to the praise of His glory. And so, as we have seen, in order for those chosen to be brought to that conclusion, they needed to be made holy and blameless. And they were made holy and blameless in Jesus Christ. And so there's this very logical connection between all of these realities. You have God's original determined plan. And in order to bring that plan to fruition, God had to choose those whom He had determined. And He had to make them holy and blameless. Because without holiness, they could not stand before Him. Without holiness, there is no blamelessness. And so God determined to make them holy in Christ so they might be blameless before Him. So Paul says, God has chosen us in Christ so that we might be holy and blameless. And in love, He predestined us to adoption. Not just to adoption, but to adoption as 
sons. It's a great word. It's a great word. We have chosen. We have predestined. We have holy. We have blameless. And now we have this word adoption. It's a word we just have to stop for a moment and think about and look intently into the details so that we might know some of what this word means. Right? I don't know the history of everybody in this room, but there may be some here who have been adopted. And if that be the case, then you know some of what this word means. But it's interesting that the Apostle Paul, in writing to these people, would have to bring this out because this word was not a word used in Jewish community. This was not a Jewish word. It was not a word that was thought of in the Jewish realm. It was not a Jewish word. It was not a Jewish concept in the first century. The Jews knew nothing of the concept of adoption. The Apostle Paul is the only one who uses it in the New Testament. Where would Paul get it? Paul was a Jew. Where would Paul understand and get this concept so that now he's writing it to these believers who are in Ephesus? Well, while it's not in the Jewish community, it certainly was a concept seen and used in the Roman community, Roman society. In fact, it was part of their law system. We know that Paul was a Roman citizen. He knew their laws, he knew their rules, and he understood them. And so he would have understood this term. And under Roman law, when a child was adopted, the legal transaction secured for them all the rights to both the family name and the person adopting them. But it also secured in the adoption transaction the rights to the property that they owned. So they became part of the family. They got the family name, but they had rights to all that the family owned. Even though they were not a blood relative, even though they had no blood pumping through their body that was of their own now new family name. So according to the law of adoption, they were seen as being a blood relative in the same way as one who was a blood relative by nature. And so the very moment that the declaration of adoption was finalized, that child who just a moment before was not part of that family is now part of the family. They have a legal right to the claim of sonship of the adopter. They are now a son of the one who adopted them. But not only that, the one who adopted them also had all the rights and privileges as a parent over that now no adopted son. So the law had an effect in both directions. It affected both parties involved. And so the term that the Apostle Paul is using here highlights an inseparable relationship between both parties. It is an inseparable relationship. And so what is Paul saying? What is Paul conveying here? What is he trying to get across to us? What Paul is saying is this, listen, it isn't simply that we become children of God by way of a new birth. Certainly Paul writes about the new birth in many places, talks about 
regeneration and becoming new in Christ, that we are regenerated and we are given a new nature in Christ. In fact, Ephesians 2 says we are made alive in Christ. So this is the new nature idea, but, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. Even more so, we, in adoption, we have a new ranking. We have a new privilege because we are sons of God. You see, so what Paul is saying is that our new nature in Christ isn't determined by our adoption. Our new nature in Christ is not something done by a legal transaction called adoption. No, that's accomplished by the Holy Spirit in regeneration. We are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We become natural children by regeneration. But that's not what Paul's talking about here in adoption. What he is emphasizing here is not our new nature. What he is emphasizing here is our new rank, our new privilege. Our position as sons. We have the privileges that we have as sons of God. I think sometimes we we don't think about that with the weight that it deserves. Sometimes we go around saying, yes, I'm a child of God, and and it's almost like brushed off with this small kind of idea. And the reality is, listen, we are sons of God. That is a massive reality, let alone the fact that we've been made alive in Christ, but we have all the privileges of being sons of God. It is adoption that opens the door to those privileges. It is adoption that opens the door to the privileges of being a son and being in the family of God. And that is the reason behind why God sends His Spirit to regenerate us so that we have a new nature through Christ. In other words, this again is the execution of the very predetermined plan of God that God has made us sons. And because He has made us sons, we need to be like Him. We need that new nature. We need the nature of our Father. And so we have Jesus Christ and we have new life in Christ. And He sends the Spirit to us who regenerates us and we breathe that breath air of faith and we believe in Jesus Christ and now we are new creatures in Christ. Adoption is somewhat of a precious term in our extended family. My extended family, I have several adopted family members. And within those collective families, in our extended family, those children have no blood relationship to the respective families that they're in. But they have every legal right in the family. The parents have every legal right to their lives as if they were their own blood. And the children that they have, and some of them are now grandchildren of those who were adopted, will be known in our family as being legal parts of our family for the rest of their lives. Even though they have no potential human nature in them that has any relation to us. And so too, you and I who have been chosen by God, He has predetermined 
for us to be His sons through Jesus Christ. And because He predetermined us to be sons through Jesus Christ, God even went farther than human adoption can go, and God gave us His very nature. A new nature in Christ. By means of the Holy Spirit. And so we have, beloved, all the rights and the privileges of sons. We are the family of God. It's not a trivial thing to say when we gather together. I'm, I'm getting together with the family of God. That is not a trivial thing. That is not a, a nuanced little phrase. That is a reality of God's mind and heart expressed in all of us when we gather together with our family. I was saying to someone this morning, I think sometimes we think of our earthly families in ways we probably ought not to think about them. Because I think we cheapen the family of God when we think about our earthly families over and above the family of God. You realize this is our family? Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 8 when his family came to him? I, This is my family, those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Listen, you and I are family more so now than we have ever been with our families that are physically of this earth. And so our adoption is the highest expression of God's love. God adopted us as sons in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons. And He did it through Jesus Christ to Himself. The Apostle John understood this. He wrote this in 1 John 3 and verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. You say, okay, what manner of love has the Father bestowed upon us? The world says it's not love if God chooses. And yet we're saying here that it's the highest manner of love of God because He chose. And yet here's what John says. John says that's the reality. What manner of love has the Father bestowed upon us? That we should be called what? Sons of God. You want to see the highest expression of the love of God? Then you are a son of God because God chose you. And He did that through Jesus Christ. That's the manner of love God has bestowed upon us. That we would be called His sons. And say, why is Paul saying all of this? Paul is all saying this. So that we would be to the praise of the glory of His grace, right? All of this was according to the kind intention of His will, verse 5, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. That's the purpose. Why would God do this? Simply so that we would praise Him. God hasn't done it because He saw something in us down through the annals of time and said, oh, those are worthy people to choose. I guess I'll choose them. No, He did it according to the kind intention of His will. He wasn't moved to do it because of something in His creation. He was moved to do it simply because God chose to do it out of His kind heart. He was motivated to act in this way toward us simply because and only because of His unlimited grace. That's it. God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Why? So that we might both see His glory and be reflectors of His glory to the creation around us. That's why He did it. Notice what he says in chapter 2. 
right? He did this for us when we were dead in our transgressions. Verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Why? So that in the ages to come, so that in the time to come, way past us, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So when others look at it, they see Him. They see Christ. They see the glory of God through it all. They say, wow, God would do that? Is it any wonder, Paul says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. So remember, remember that formerly you, verse 11, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision... Remember, verse 12, that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants. You had no hope without God in the world. Paul is talking about in time, from from all extenuating circumstances and purposes, you were outside. You had no chance. And yet, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, verse 13, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ has not only changed your life, He's changed the Jews' lives, He's changed everybody's life who believes upon Him. There's no dividing wall between any of us. But God was not obligated to bestow upon us these gracious gifts. He was not obligated because of something He saw in us from looking down in future times before Him and saw that we would somehow desire to choose them and therefore He gave us and granted us all of these precious spiritual gifts in the heavenly places? No, He freely bestowed them. And that's the chief reason that we praise God. Because God did it simply out of the graciousness of His heart. We praise God because we understand that it was undeserved, that it was unmerited. And so our position in the heavenlies is in Christ. Because we're in Christ, that opens us to every spiritual blessing. Paul says we've been chosen before time simply and only because God's love and His gracious purpose to do so. And so His predetermined plan and execution of that plan gives us great reason to praise God, does it not? We think about ourselves and think about that we were nothing before the creation of the world. We were nothing and God simply chose to save. He chose us. He predetermined us as adoption as sons. And therefore He made it happen. His plan has made us holy. It has made us blameless in Christ. We are actually children of God through Christ And therefore we can go to our Father and we can cry to Him and He hears us and He cares for us. And so Paul says, when you understand that, you'll glorify God with your words and with your lives. Not saying anything different than Jesus had said to the disciples when He walked the face of this earth. Matthew 5, verse 16, Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
Right? Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, Peter said, so that in the things they slander you, they will, on behalf of your good deeds, even though they, they don't know God, they will glorify God because of who you are. So, beloved, let us just praise God for what He has done for us. We need not mope around as those who are not children of God. Why are we a Christian? Because God has chosen us to be His child by His grace. And He has executed it so that we would hear the Gospel and be regenerated by the Spirit to believe the Gospel so that we would be exactly what He predetermined for us before time ever began. So Paul says, live as to give glory to Him for what He has done. This is who we are. Well, we'll get to see a little bit about all that the Son has accomplished in verses 7 through verse 12. And then we'll see what the Spirit does in verses 13 and 14. We'll get to that. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You. Thank You for these magnificent truths, Lord. Each one of them we could just camp on. We could dwell there. We could sit there for just so long and and just revel in all the nuances that are here. But Lord, it's one thing to, to have an intellectual understanding of these things. It's another that we might live it out. So help us to understand them with the purpose of doing what You your ultimate purpose is that we might live to the praise of the glory of your grace. That we might bless you because you have blessed us so greatly. Lord, do that with our lives, with our words. And help us enjoy one another in the family of God as we are to enjoy one another. All to your praise in Christ's name. All God's people said, Amen.